In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 begins this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, our physical bodies and strength. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are of divine power to destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the battle in hearts. It's a battle in our minds. Paul goes on, he said, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We often think of even spiritual warfare as going out and engaging with others. And sometimes there's a battle that is waging even within our own heart. And within our own mind, our thoughts, and more particularly, our own will. What I think and what I want as compared to what God has said. And that's a battle that arises in Luke chapter 22 in what I have called the tale of two swords. You see, there's, this, is, this is like last week in Luke 22. There's a framing of a centerpiece by two parallels or two other um, paragraphs that deal with the same topic. They have some similarities. Both of them have the swords. You, you learn about the swords up here. We use the swords and get correction down here. And in the middle, there's something that made the difference. Something that should have made the difference more than it did. So in the tale of two swords, first of all, we're going we're gonna to come to that point that maybe you weren't even aware of. What Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, you're going to need one. You didn't need one before, but you're going to need one now. So let's jump into that and see if we can figure this out as we go. Luke chapter 22. You'll find us on about page 882 if you're using the church Bible in front of you. And uh, we'll begin at verse 35. The first section. He said to them, Jesus said to his disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Back in Luke chapter 9, he sent the 12. Back in Luke chapter 10, he sends the 70, two by two. And he sends them without a money bag or a traveler's bag or sandals, extra sandals. Did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now, but now, there's a strong shift, there's a change, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. If you've got resources, you're going to need them. Or a knapsack, a traveler's bag, or, or and, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For, here's the explanation, why this change? What has changed that caused them to do differently now than they did before? For, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For, why must this be fulfilled in me? For, what is written about me is now having its fulfillment. And they said, well, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. 
And that it's enough is a Hebrew idiom. It may mean that's enough of that. That's enough of that topic. He's actually carried the topic a little further. And once again, the bigger point they miss. Why? Because <laughs> they're still thinking about the swords. I mean, these are like young boys that they've been wanting to play with swords for a while. The Romans have swords, but we don't have any swords. But we get swords now. They're still thinking about the swords, and Jesus has moved on. What's changed? The circumstances, he says, are changing. Before it was like this. And he's not saying that wasn't the way to do it then. It's just not going to be the way to do it tomorrow. And next week, the circumstances are changing. There's going to be a difference emerging. But now, I tell you, I provided for you then, Jesus could tell them. I will provide for you, but it's a change. It's in a different way. Different times call for different measures. There's a new provision for them, and it's going to be by prayer rather than his presence. You see, they've been going out proclaiming the Messiah. The Messiah is here. The Messiah, the Christ, promised by God, is in our midst. His kingdom is at the door. His kingdom is ready. Receive the Messiah and prepare for the coming of his kingdom. And everything's going to be wonderful. And Jesus has been doing miraculous signs, and he empowers his disciples to do the same kind of signs that are the descriptors of what life in the kingdom is going to be like. The, the, the pressures of the, the curse of, of sin are held back. People experience physical healing, the lame walk, the sight see. Even some of the dead are raised. Mothers have their sons restored to them. All of these indicators of a difference of life on earth because the king is here and his kingdom is at hand. But the king is going to be rejected. The king is not going to be received. They have not been waiting just for this. There's something in the way, and that something is in their own hearts. So the Messiah is actually going to be rejected. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. And that's what Jesus describes. But now, things are going to change. You're going to need provision for yourself that I provided for you. You miraculously experience, even as you will not have needs, you will not be worried about how are we going to pay the rent, how are we going to buy enough food for our family when you're in Messiah's kingdom. Those will not be your, your concerns. But the, the kingdom will wait. The, the, the king has been rejected. And so if you have resources, if you have provision, you're going to need that. You're going to need to share that with others. And that becomes an emerging theme in the book of Acts and following in the letters. You're going to need to take that traveler's bag if you have it. And you're even going to need a sword. And they say, oh, well, we've got a couple, actually. Here's two swords. They kind of rummage among themselves. Or did they find them laying around? We don't know where they got the swords. But they come up with two. Oh, well, I only had one. But how many, of, how many disciples are there with Jesus at this time? How many? I can't hear. I, I hear the one child telling me, but I can't, I'm not sure what she's saying. So there's, there's maybe, maybe 11. Remember, Judas has already left, so Judas isn't there. There's maybe 11, but maybe Mark is also with them, so maybe there's 12. Maybe there's a few more. There's at least 11 if not more. And how many swords do they have? Two. I hope they can share. 
Now, you're not going to outfit much of an army with two swords. You're not going to start the revolt against Rome that is going to lead to Messiah's kingdom coming if all you've got two swords. They've got two swords, and Jesus says, it's enough, it's enough. Enough talk about swords. Why is two enough? Well, if they're just, if they're not going to mount a rebellion, but rather it's for personal defense on the road, they don't need everybody a sword. They need a couple. The band is armed, so they're not easy targets for the thieves that they're going to run into. This is probably for self-defense. Maybe this is the biblical justification you've been looking for for your carry-conceal permit. Or, well, a sword's more of an open-carry thing, isn't it? kind of hard to conceal. So, there's that. But things are changing. They didn't need to take those provisions for themselves before. They're going to need to do so now before they could go out saying, we just trust the Lord. And we might want to do that today. In the day in which we live, we might say, I'm not going to plan for tomorrow. I'm not going to work things out. I'm just going to trust the Lord for my needs day by day, and God will provide. And that sounds good. That sounds spiritual. And yet it may not be spiritual. It may actually be presumptuous. Jesus tells them to make provision to outfit themselves. And there are things that we don't just presume everything will be fine. There are many ways in which we take prudent preparations, knowing the evil age in which we live. For instance, even something as, as um, um, kind of neutral as, a, as a, a physical process, as building a building, you take precautions. And Jesus says you count the cost before you build the tower. And so we, we, we have architects and we lay out plans and we have a budget and we, we seek to raise money and the, and the, the money is being, being received so that when the time comes and we're able to begin building, we will have the resources to be able to finish the building and not put it halfway up and then it can't be completed. You take precautions knowing the day that we live, and we can't just say, well, we trust the Lord. What about background checks? If you're going to help out in VBC, and I hope that you can this year, but if you haven't worked in children's ministry here at Brush Prairie Church recently, you're going to find that you're going to need a background check to be filled out before you can work with the kids. So be sure you get that done in advance because we want you to be able to help there, but we're going to take prudent precautions. We don't just say, ah, the kids will be fine. We'll, the Lord will take care of them. The Lord wouldn't allow anybody who's, who has some evil intent anywhere near our kids. He'll protect them. No, he's given us that responsibility. Just like he gives parents responsibilities to care for your little ones, where they play, who they interact with, what they have contact with. You know, here at the church, we even lock the doors when you're not here. We can just trust the Lord of the building. But there's a lot of stuff in here. That could walk away and it would make it would make it a little bit difficult the next time we tried to meet together. And so we, we realize we live in an evil age. We realize the sinfulness of humanity, even our own. And so we will take prudent precautions. And that's what Jesus is telling them here. Because something has changed. What has changed? Four explains it. Verse 37. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled. The scripture that he points to is a direct quote out of Isaiah 53. 
This is the suffering servant. This is the, the servant of the Lord. Messiah will lay down his life for them. He is the rich ruler who has all of the resources that are needed and he will lay them all down for the sake of us. He follows God's will. And so the scripture must be fulfilled in me, he says, for the scripture, Isaiah 53, is about me. You see, in normal Jewish tradition of the day, they understood Isaiah 53 in terms of this is about Israel, this is about the nation. There will be times of suffering that we as a people have to go through before we enter Messiah's kingdom. But there is one coming who will suffer for them. Otherwise, they would never enter Messiah's kingdom. It's about him. It's always been about him. This is a little prelude to Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus, where Jesus, beginning from Moses and the prophets, explains to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. The circumstances are changing. We are his ambassadors, we have been given the king, or rather the, the nobleman, the son of God, has gone away into a far country to receive a kingdom and he will return. But we wait for that return. Meanwhile, while he has gone away, he has entrusted us with a stewardship. He's given us, each of us, different responsibilities that we're to take care of, to take guard of, and to follow his word concerning rather than our own opinion. Because we are stewards of that which is his. This does not belong to us. And so we follow his words and how we live it out in the meantime, waiting for the kingdom to finally come in the midst of this broken age. So because circumstances are changing, we need to be careful how we react. There's the other side of the tale of two swords. We've got... Knapsacks, we've got money bags, we've got some provisions, we're going to need that for ministry, maybe for ourselves, maybe for some of those missionaries. We've even got uh, care taken in terms of protection. We've got two swords. It's not an army. It's not even the beginnings of one, but we're going to take prudent precautions. But we're going to be careful how we react with our traveler's bag, our own provisions. We're going to be careful with the resources that he's put into our money bag. We're going to be careful with what we do with the two swords. Because the danger is we're just going to do what we think we should with them. And that's the trap that he warns them against falling into. We see the illustration of that on the other side of the centerpiece. So let's jump down to verse 47, and we'll come back to the middle. Beware of how you react, because it's not the time for swords. When, I, when what I think God said is actually not what God meant. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow the disciples, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They are ready. And one of them then struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear, his ear, and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber? 
with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, did you lay hands on me there? But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So what's happening here? First of all, what the, when the mob has come, they have just interrupted the third move we're going to get to in the center where Jesus has come again to his disciples and told them to pray that they not fall into temptation. But they don't have time to have another go at prayer because the mob has come. Judas is leading them and they've arrived and so Jesus in his exhortation to the disciples is interrupted. The enemy will interrupt. If you're engaged in ministry... If you're, if you're pressing on with what God has given you to do, the enemy is going to interrupt. You, could, you should expect opposition. Jesus doesn't run. Jesus doesn't hide. Jesus doesn't fight against them. Jesus has been prepared for the opposition when it comes. Jesus has been prepared for, humanly speaking, now hold with me on that. We're going we're gonna to unpack that further. Humanly speaking, Jesus is ready to face the trouble when it comes. And we're going to see why. The disciples, on the other hand, ask. Well, that was good, wasn't it? That was a good move. So far, so good. Lord, is this the time for us to use the swords? Is this what you meant? Is this why we need them? Now's the time. They've come out to attack and we're going to strike them down. They've only got two swords. And the way... The way they swing him here, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's lucky that, that John or Bartholomew or Thomas or somebody doesn't end up bleeding. I mean, one of them doesn't even wait for his answer. I'll tell you a secret, it's Peter. No surprise there. Peter swings the sword, you know he's going to have one of the two, and he swings and he cuts off the guy's ear. Well, it's not some of your best swordsmanship on display, is it? Well, he hit something. Okay, that's a, we'll, we'll, we'll give him that. But he swings wildly and poorly instead of waiting for Jesus' word. Because this wasn't the time to use the swords, was it? Jesus is ready to go. Jesus is ready, as he said, to be arrested, to be crucified. Now, ready is different from maybe wanting to. But Jesus has already yielded himself to his Father's will. He's been readied, as we're going to see. So, don't assume that your reaction in the midst of circumstances is right. This is practical. Don't assume that your reaction in the midst of circumstances is right. In fact, in the midst of circumstances, especially something that has an emotional strike to it, whether it's fear or whether it's anger, when you, have an, when you have a response that wells up inside you, when something is, is fearful or when something angers you. One of the guys in our Bible study said the one thing he'd gotten from a previous pastor, that, just, that was the takeaway for him, was he was talking about knowing the Lord's will. And sometimes it's hard to know exactly what the Lord's will is in a given situation. But he said, take what you naturally yourself, left to yourself, what you would want to do, especially in those emotional times when fear or anger are welling up inside you, what you would naturally want to do, what your own reaction would normally be, and do the opposite. And you'll be pretty close to what God's will probably actually is in the circumstance. 
See, our reaction is often counter. The reaction in our own human nature is often counter to what God's purposes are. As we're going to see, Jesus himself in his humanity has to fight that same battle. Why would we not expect to have to fight it? Don't assume your reaction is right. What I think I should do is often not what God says. We need to know, do what God says rather than what, how we just tend to react. For instance, here, the swords. The swords might be needed for them in defense along the way, defend, defending themselves along the road, but they don't need to defend Jesus. They don't need to. It would be wrong, actually, to try to avoid the cross. That's the purpose for which he came. The scripture must be fulfilled in me because it's about me. He has to go to the cross. His enemies don't understand the full ramifications of that. They think this is where their victory is finally going to be won. And this is where his victory is finally, ultimately, going to be won. So, Jesus confronts and exposes the mob in the darkness, yet he trusts himself to the Father's will. This is your time. Things done in secret and the power of darkness, these things belong to you. This is your moment, but it will not last. He's already called them out. He's already called Judas out. He's not surprised by any of this. And one of the ways that you can shed some light on what it is that you're thinking of doing an action you're thinking of taking, or maybe a reaction to a particular circumstance? If your spouse knew, would you still do that? If you're going to describe it to your small group next week, is that still the story you'd want to be telling them? Or would you want to tell it a different way? Because maybe you should be doing a different thing. If your neighbors knew this, what would they think about it? You see, our actions are decisions, decisions that we might make in secret about what we're going to do concerning ourselves, decisions that we make in secret, they're kind of like email. I was told years ago that if you, if, if you don't want what you write in an email to be on the front page of the newspaper the next day, this was obviously a while ago when people read newspapers, if you wouldn't want what you write to show up in the newspaper the next day, then don't send that email. Our decisions are like that. The decisions that we'll form in our own mind, if we wouldn't happily tell somebody else that decision later, maybe it's not the right decision. What has God said to do in this matter? You know, in similar ways to what Jesus does here, Early Christians would expose the injustice that was going on around them by the powers of the society and the culture that they were in. They would show the evil of it. They would show the injustice of it, not by raging against it, but by showing grace in the midst of being treated unjustly and wrongly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, among the nations or people around you, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works in response and glorify God on the day of visitation. Rather than defending or reacting our response would be good deeds that glorify God. 
Let me turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14 also. Even if you should suffer for righteousness. And that's an age that we're experiencing a little more of. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame themselves. That's what Jesus says. Every day in the temple, where were you then? Why didn't you arrest me out in the open in front of everybody? Because you're ashamed yourself of what you're doing. And that continues in the world around us today. There is much evil done in back rooms hidden from public view. And yet, it will all be revealed sooner or later. We can trust that to the Lord. How is it that we will guard ourselves How is it that we can respond well instead of reacting according to our own human nature? How do we do that? That gets us to the center, going back to verse 39. So you have, well, here's two swords, and uh, now's not the time to use the swords, at least not in that way. And in the middle of it, we find what it is that makes the difference. How can I discern what the will of the Lord is in these strange circumstances changing times we find ourselves in. And Jesus, verse 39, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And they appeared, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, verse 44 seems to parallel verse 42. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Verse 40, 45 seems to parallel 41. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, even as he left the disciples and went to pray. Verse 46, he said to them, as in verse 40, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, they will be tempted. Jesus himself is being tempted. And Jesus' temptation gives a little light for us on what it is that the disciples also are going to be tempted by. Jesus himself here is tempted to avoid the cross to go a different way, to choose another plan, maybe to react against these who would dare to come and attack him in secret at night. He could strike them all down, and maybe that's what he should do. He could just strike the evil, and then we could enter into the kingdom. The problem is it wouldn't leave any of us to enter into the kingdom. But that's Satan's temptation. Don't do it God's way. There's another way. That was Satan's temptation back in Luke chapter 4. Don't do it God's way. Three times Jesus answers him according to God's word. And Satan, at one point in that temptation, he, he, he suggests to him, you know, God wouldn't let you die. 
God wouldn't want you to die. In fact, he'll give you, he'll give his angels charge over you to protect you, to keep you from any harm. Well, that's not exactly what it says. Pray that you do not enter into temptation frames the question that we actually now come to in the spiritual place of sincerely praying like Jesus. You see, the way that our, our reaction turns into a, a submitting to God response is praying first. Praying first will guard your response. Praying first will guide our steps. Pray that you do not enter temptation. There where Jesus sincerely prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. A guy shared with me earlier in the week, I often start out asking, pleading for an alternative, telling God in my prayer things that I think he needs to know. If he had all the information, he'd probably come to a different conclusion as well. If only God knew, right? As you see it. I tell God my ideas, my solutions, like Abraham did that too. Don't don't kick yourself too hard here. Abraham did that. Oh God, that Ishmael would live before you. But along the way, Abraham's will becomes God's will. And he and Isaac head to the mountain, ultimately. I often come to the right perspective only in the midst of arguing or debating with God in prayer. Do we pray to change God's mind? Or do we pray that God would change our mind? Well, sometimes we pray and God answers and God is waiting to respond with an apparent change from what he has decreed according to our prayers. Moses changed the minds of God in in Exodus 32. And I think God just wanted Moses to come to what God was seeing. Hezekiah gets 15 more years, although it didn't turn out well. 2 Kings chapter 20, in, the, in, in Jonah chapter 4, the Ninevites pray and God relents. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the judgment that was coming upon them. Yet here, Jesus does not seek to change God's will. Jesus yields to his Father's will. Because there's no other possible way to secure our salvation. Well, you might think of, well, there must be another way. Why did God have to do it that way? Couldn't have, God's God. God can do whatever He wants, right? Well, that's true according to the God of your imagination. We've got a God we put in a box, and, and He makes sense to us. But the God of our imagination doesn't take seriously enough our own sin and guilt and doesn't take seriously enough the genuine holiness of God that separates him from any sin and iniquity that he cannot embrace, that he cannot even look upon it. That we are separate from God because of who we are and who he is. And our own imaginations of what God ought to be like soft pedals both of those. And somehow then we all fit together. Or at least some of us do. At least I would fit there, according to my own imaginations. But it cost this much. Jesus had to die. And the point is that Jesus was willing to die. He paid this much for our salvation. 
Carol Bach describes what's going on here with Jesus and what, what was needed for the disciples as well, is Satan desires to sift them like wheat. Remember when Jesus says that, he actually, it's a plural you. He's, he's addressing to Peter, but he's talking about all of them. Satan intends to sift all of them. He's going to try all of them. It doesn't mean that he's going to give them a hard time. Merely, he's seeking He's seeking to actually lead them into rebellion. Prayer will protect their hearts from unfaithfulness. It will encourage them to continue faithful and to persevere. Prayer is important because in prayer we express our need to God. We express our desire to depend on Him and to rest in His care. We don't have the the ability to do that, but we express the desire to God, and he meets us there with the ability that we don't have. This perspective, this need for God, a desire to depend on him, to rest in his care, this perspective is what the disciples need in the face of those moments. The way to faithfulness in the midst of, this is what Bach says, and I want you to catch this part. The way to faithfulness in the midst of hostile rejection of Christ is a, dis- a dependent spirit that communes with God. We desperately, urgently need to be in relationship with our God and Savior because all the voices around us scream the other direction. The way to faithfulness in the midst of hostile rejection of Christ that surrounds us, is a dependent spirit that communes with God. Jesus makes known the desire of his heart to God. His primary concern is accomplishing God's will. You know, there's three aspects of his prayer. It's a very human prayer. We see something about the humanity, the tenderness of Jesus here. He prays, Father. He claims God personally. You are my Father. He says, if you are willing, he honors God to continue to be sovereign. God is sovereign. And Jesus yields to that, even in the prayer that he voices. Finally, his prayer is intensely human. Take this cup from me. It's a window into the soul of Jesus, the human soul of Jesus. It's it's something that every human being recognizes in our own soul, isn't it? Take this cup from me. I don't want this. It's the prayer of one who experiences the fierce claim of his human will over against the divine will. Isn't that the battle of the spiritual life? Isn't that the arguments, the lofty opinions, the taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ? That we want our will instead of his will. In his humanity, Jesus is tempted like we are in all things. Jesus knows what that battle is like, and he meets that battle. He prepares himself to respond well when the mob comes because he has begun in prayer, and he urged the disciples to do the same thing, and that's where they failed. They didn't fail when the mob came. They failed in their preparation. And I don't mean the sword training, although that was also lacking. They failed in their dependent communion with God. And thus, their reactions unraveled out of that. Trusting ourselves, we fail. 
Trusting God and his grace for us is where we stand. That's what Ephesians 6 told us, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand. It's not about us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, My grace is sufficient for you, God says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's reply. We recognize our dependence upon him. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. Not only for salvation, not only to be restored into relationship with him, but to walk with him in his ways, to respond well instead of react. We are in desperate need of our Savior. And then you notice verse 43. This, I think, is the actual, this, this is worth another couple of minutes. This is the actual center of a series of parallels right there in the midst of Jesus praying in the garden. I didn't think this would be it. I thought this was kind of, well, it's just there, it's nice. I thought, I was sure when I began to dig into this section that the parallels would point to the center, which had to be not my will, but thy will be done. But the center, actually, that doesn't have any parallels to it, verses 39 to 46, is verse 43. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Why? Come on, be honest with yourself just for a minute. Why does Jesus, the Son of God, need a stinking angel? I mean, this is a different level here. Is Jesus, dependent? Is Jesus needy for angels to help him? He could call on, on thousands of them, ten thousands of them, if he wished to. Pilate, just so you know that. But he doesn't. But God sends Jesus in the midst of this very human moment as he wrestles with the human will versus the divine will. And God sends to him as a man an angel to strengthen him. And that shouldn't surprise us. What are angels? Are they not ministering servants sent for the aid of those who will inherit salvation? In fact, some of us have likely entertained, given hospitality to, encountered angels and we didn't even know it. Remember the, the, the day they showed up at Abraham's house? There was a day that they showed up and made a prison visit to Peter. Well, that was apparently an angel, and it just disappeared. I could talk more about that, but you probably think I was strange, so I will not. But one of my favorites is Daniel chapter 6, and I like the children's song version, where Daniel sings to King Darius, The lions weren't hungry last night, O king. The lions weren't hungry last night. The Lord sent his angel to shut their mouths tight. The lions weren't hungry last night. I know, normally I quote him, so I just wanted to change that up a little bit, Evan. I hope that's okay. We are in desperate need of our Savior. We want to respond well instead of react. In the midst of a changing time, when we are going to experience more of the, the hostility, the opposition around us, how do we respond instead of react? We will respond well by praying first. Praying first will guard our response, will guide our steps. So, I want to close doing just that. That we would pray to have understanding in the midst of the stuff. We're going through all different kinds of stuff as I look out across the congregation this morning. That we would not fall into temptation. That we would have God's understanding in the midst of various circumstances. That we would continue to believe that we are forgiven in Jesus as Savior. 
that we would trust God's will, that we would follow God's word instead of looking for ways to explain it away when it makes its claim upon us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you, first of all, that we can call you Father. And Lord, like a child, we have to admit that there are many times when we do not understand what is going on around us. We don't certainly see all of what is at play, and so we need to trust you. Father, we want to rest in your care. We know that we are tempted. We are tempted to go our own way and serve ourselves in sin, that which we know is sin. But sometimes, Father, we're tempted more to just rely on ourselves, to think we're stronger than we are, to do what seems well to us instead of waiting for your answer. Lord, help us to ask and help us to wait that we would hear from you. Lord, help us to continue to believe the gospel that we have forgiveness in Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. That for we who have believed in Jesus as our Savior, that we would continue to believe that. We would not allow the enemy to sow his doubts that we have somehow disqualified ourselves because we are qualified not by ourselves but by Jesus. Father, help us as your Son showed us to in prayer yield to your will rather than our own, to trust your word rather than our own arguments or opinions. Father, as we sing this next song, Lord, make it our prayer that we again would arise as church dependent upon you that the power would not be out of any skills, abilities, or swords, or money bags, but the fruit would come by your Spirit. Please to use us in your will, we pray. And all who agree said, Amen.